Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned that your sense of smell may be affecting your weight. Our sense of smell is key to enjoying food. In fact, the sensation of flavor itself is a combination of taste and smell. Mm. And researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, did indeed find food and smell to be intricately connected. In studies, researchers used three different types of genetically modified obese mice. One group lost their sense of smell. Another had a normal sense of smell, and the third group had a boosted sense of smell. All three groups of mice had the same fatty diet. And what researchers found was that the obese mice who lost their sense of smell also lost weight. Now, that might not seem outright strange, but there was something weird. While the smell-deficient mice slimmed down, the normal smellers ballooned to twice their normal weight, and the super-smellers got even fatter. What the study suggests is it's not just the mere enjoyment of food that odor plays a part in. Our sense of smell and the odor of food affect how the body deals with calories. The researchers believe that if you can't smell your food, you may burn it rather than store it. You see, sensory systems play a role in metabolism. There's a key connection between our smell system and the regions of our brain that regulate that metabolism. Weight gain isn't purely a measure of the calories consumed. It's also related to how those calories are perceived. When you're on the hunt for food, your body will store calories in the event you don't find any. But when you do get food, it will burn those calories. Researchers notice that mice, as well as humans, are more sensitive to smell when they are hungry than after they've just eaten. So what might be happening is that the lack of smell tricks the body into thinking it's already eaten. The mice not only slimmed down, but their health also improved. While obese, the mice had developed a glucose intolerance, which is a precursor to diabetes. But when they slimmed down, their glucose tolerance normalized. And the weight that the mice were losing was only fat weight. It had no effect on muscle, organ, or bone mass. There was a downside, though. The loss of smell brought with it a large increase in the levels of the hormone non-adrenaline, which is a stress response tied to the sympathetic nervous system. In humans, this change could lead to a heart attack. And while knocking out a person's sense of smell seems like an extreme and perhaps dangerous diet, researchers suggest a temporary loss of smell could one day be an alternative to stomach stapling or surgery for the morbidly obese. In these patients, smell could be wiped out just temporarily. Six months or so would allow their metabolic program to rewire, and then they could simply let the olfactory neurons grow back to regain that sense of smell. This week I learned that being forgetful is good for the brain. The word forget is actually quite misleading here. It implies that a memory is gone forever, which isn't the case. Researchers prefer the term retrieval failure. You see, our brain makes memories more or less accessible. So when we can't immediately recall something like your mom's birthday or the name of your childhood best friend, that memory just is stored in a different, sometimes deeper part of the brain, making it harder, if not impossible, to retrieve. 
While it can be horribly embarrassing to, say, call your colleague Chris when his name is Brian and he's told you that several times, this approach to forgetting is actually a healthy exercise for the brain. According to a new paper published in the journal Neuron, many of the brain cells associated with memory actively foster memory loss. As your brain adds and grows new neurons, those new neurons effectively overwrite memories that are already there. Forgetting helps the brain prune memories that we don't really need. If we were always able to recall the full name, birthday, pet, and address of our childhood best friend, we'd be overwhelmed and overloaded by the time we were middle-aged. There are some things you just don't need to recall, like where your car was parked last month. But what you definitely need to recall is where your car is parked today. Where's the car? Well, I, I thought it was here. You don't know where we parked? Right. <laughs> this is great. Look, I thought it was green 22. I remember orange. I thought it was orange. I didn't pay attention. Oh, this is just what I mean. But the cool thing is when we have retrieval failure and we're able to extract that detail from the brain's long-term storage, that detail becomes easier to recall in the future. And when we relearn something we had forgotten, we can often develop a richer form of understanding. To activate this higher power of learning, you just need to keep experiencing the memory. Simply put, practice makes perfect. Although it is not quite a perfect system, you can't leave too much time in between recalling something or else you'll have a harder time pulling that detail from the deepest, darkest depths of your memory. This week I learned that the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs 66 million years ago was actually really good for frogs. Frogs are ancient, like 200 million years ancient. And today they are fantastically diverse in species. And all of that started after the mass extinction event that wiped out those dinos. The absence of all those other animals created an ecological vacuum, and it was in this strange environment that frogs thrived. You see, frogs are master survivors. They have this ability to go underground and live through long periods of inactivity. They've also proven to be really adaptable, willing and able to experiment with new ways of life. So after the extinction, there were three frog lineages that survived, and they took full advantage of the new habitats and resources around them. And this led to a sort of explosive evolution. As seed-bearing trees and other flowering plants began to dominate the landscape, frogs adjusted and started living in trees, which they hadn't previously done. And many of the new frog species also started laying their eggs on land, skipping the tadpole phase entirely and growing right into a frog. What's incredible is that today, some 9 in 10 frog species evolved from these three frog lineages, proving that frogs are evolutionary opportunists. This week I learned that Betty Crocker wasn't a real person. She was pitched into being by the all-male advertising department of a Minneapolis flower company in 1921. The flower company, which would later become General Mills, was on the hunt for a trustworthy spokeswoman who could answer questions about ruined pie crusts and dry cakes. 
Since these inquiries came by post, all the company needed was a name and a signature. The name Betty was chosen because it had a friendly ring to it, and Crocker was the last name of a former company executive. As for Betty Crocker's famous signature, that exceptionally neat, almost bubbly font, well, that was a composite of the handwriting samples collected from women who worked at the flower company. But Betty continued to evolve. All of this menu can be prepared early in the day, including the macaroni and cheese, which need only to be reheated before dinner. In 1924, she got a voice. The flower company purchased a small Midwestern radio station for advertising purposes. They created the Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air. Home cooks in the region tuned in to hear advice from their favorite cooking confidant. Sour cherries, which are in season right now, stewed gently until done and sweetened to your taste, will dress up the plain vanilla ice cream. The first Betty was voiced by Marjorie Child Husted, but eventually NBC picked up the program and there were Bettys all over the country. In the 1950s, Betty Crocker moved to TV. Hello everybody. On behalf of General Mills and its many and varied services, a warm welcome to our Betty Crocker kitchens. Presented behind a wide, handsome wood desk, wearing a halo of blonde curls and a prim black dress that buttoned to the neck with a lace collar, Betty Crocker became a fully three-dimensional woman. And it didn't matter that there were many different Bettys to come. The Betty Crocker Service Program, a regular feature... What's really remarkable about the evolution of Betty Crocker is not that she was made up, because plenty of spokeswomen in the 1920s were fictional, but that in this time period, Betty was imagined as a confident, professional woman. As April White details in JSTOR Daily, Betty's professional image was thanks to that woman behind Betty's original voice, Marjorie Child Husted. Husted was a cooking instructor and home economist with the company, and it was her idea that Betty be what she called the home economist-in-chief. Betty was an expert in her field. She was warm, but matter-of-fact. And it was Husted who not only gave Betty the voice, but sculpted her trusted persona, writing her recipes in the early days and even answering her fan mail. Maybe it seems quaint or trivial now, with working women and family so much the norm, but back in the 1920s and through the Great Depression and World War II, Betty was a champion for housewives when they didn't have many. Well, now, making lemon pie for 15 guests is an undertaking for a bride under the best of conditions. But Lois faced her ordeal with a temperamental oven, no pie pans, no measuring cup or spoons, no flour sifter or grater or egg beater, not even a sharp knife to cut the lemons with. So I think she had courage even to try, don't you? Betty reminded women they had skill, smarts, and plenty of value. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned here, you can go to theweek.com slash podcast, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainer series. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, we'd like to offer you four risk-free issues of The Week magazine. To get started, visit theweek.com slash for free. 
I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. 